History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the History of Persia. I'm Trevor Cully, and this is episode 97, Bactria Ruling the Later Empire. Last time, we covered the early years of Artaxerxes III in the Western Empire. He made sweeping administrative and military reforms to cull the power of his Western satraps, who had proven themselves too rebellious to be trusted. Artabazus II of Hellespontine Phrygia proved exactly that when he refused to comply and rebelled. Ironically, fresh off his own success, putting down his rebellious half-brother. Meanwhile, Athenian ships rode right up to the Persian coast to fight their social war against other members of the Second Athenian League only to be berated back into good behavior by Artaxerxes. This time, I've got a real treat. By now, you are probably familiar with the refrain, but we don't even know what was happening in the East, it could have been anything. It's an unfortunate constraint of both Iran's lack of literary culture at the time, the preferred perishable media of written records all over the empire, and various climates that accelerate the perishing of those documents. However, in 2012, an incredible collection of 48 sheets of leather covered in Aramaic writing were published for the first time. These documents have come up occasionally in the past, but Now that they are contemporary with our narrative, I think it's time to go in depth. These are the Khalili collection of Aramaic documents from Achaemenid Bactria, or Adab, probably intended to be read as ADAB, but that doesn't shorten it while I'm speaking. I mentioned them in the last episode, but this episode is going to be all about them. The first thing to note is that the Adab do not actually record information about Bactria primarily. The names and information do make it clear that these records were the product of the Bactrian satrapy, but geographically, many of the records focus on Sogdia, immediately north of what I normally mean when saying Bactria. The locations mentioned are centered on the upper Zaravshan River, at the intersection of modern Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, and Kyrgyzstan. Historically, it's also been called the Sugd River, as in Sogdia. But the current name is very informative. Zaravshan literally means the spreader of gold in modern Persian. The sediment at the bottom of the river, specifically the upper river where these documents originated, was historically very good for gold panning, making this region extremely valuable. 
Despite discussing Sogdia, the Adab are not from Sogdia, geographically. In this regard, they are very Bactrian. Almost all of the documents are part of a continuous series of letters and records from the 4th and 3rd centuries BCE, but one does appear to come from the late 5th century. Almost all of them refer directly to the satraps of Bactria, meaning they likely came from the provincial ruler's archive in the city of Bactra, modern Balkh. Many of them were sent to a direct subordinate in a city called Kumi, whose name has changed surprisingly little over the centuries since it's now Kolm, Afghanistan though it did spend most of the early modern period going by Tashkurgan, so take that for what you will. It is just east of Bactra itself, and seems to have been the seat of a local governor. There are four main people we need to know from this archive. The first two are only known from these letters and receipts. Akva Mazda was apparently the satrap of Bactria, or more accurately, the satrap of Bactria, Sogdia, and probably Margiana, which were frequently structured as just one province. His subordinate in Kulmi was Bhagavant, the governor. Governor of what is unclear. Based on context, it seems like he may have been the eastern equivalent to what the Greeks called a hyparch the next rung below Satrap. Bhagavant was based in a Bactrian city, but many of his letters deal with Sogdia, so presumably he was in charge of on-the-ground affairs in one of those regions. Then we have Vishtaspa, also known in Greek histories as Histaspes. Yes, another one. He was the Karanaya, what I usually call Keranos, using the Greek term, in the East. Apparently, he took up the position sometime in the end of Artaxerxes III's reign or the beginning of his son's. The presence of a commander with this title, if it means anything even close to what it meant in the West, is a sign that there were military troubles on the frontier. And finally, we have Bayasa much better known to history by the Greek name Bessos. At the end of the period covered by the Adab, he became satrap, but at this stage he was just another local governor. Both Histaspes and Bessos will feature prominently in some later episodes when they are summoned by the great king to bring their troops west. But this episode is about Bactria. For the most part, these letters don't contain that much narrative information. There's certainly some interesting social and economic history, though. For example, the very first text in the 2012 publication is a letter from a noble named Vahuvakshu, who sent a letter to Satrap Akvamazda in order to complain about Bhagavant. Apparently, the local governor was trying to exercise some kind of tax or fine on Vahuvakshu's apprenticed camel keepers. These apprentices were legally, at least for financial purposes, an extension of their master, and thus Vahuvakshu himself. 
It's not clear why exactly the local governor would, quote, issue a prohibition on camel keepers, or what that prohibition might have been. There is a reference to confiscating an ox and a donkey, so maybe these apprentices were accused of some kind of unapproved livestock keeping. It would have been some sort of tax evasion, as far as I can tell. But I promised military activity. The specific context for the records in the Adab doesn't really make room for Herodotian descriptions of battles and wars, but it does contain hints of military activity. For example, document A2 describes how Akva Mazda ordered Bhagavant to clear the sand from a fortress called Artadatana, somewhere in the desert north of Bactra. The project had apparently been started by a group the initial publication translates as the Wayfarers. All that tells us is that they traveled on foot. However, Bhagavant was being sent along with his personal bodyguard and the horses to bring provisions and assist these wayfarers. Given that his bodyguard was now involved, and that they were restoring a fort, the horses could plausibly describe cavalry, and the wayfarers would be run-of-the-mill infantry. Document A4 is from year 11 of Artaxerxes III, meaning 347 BCE. It was written by Bhagavant to either Akvamazda or another official who ranked in between the two. Akvamazda had ordered the governor to marshal his troops and construct a wall and ditch at the town of Nikshapaya, somewhere in Sogdia. Once again, the military context of the builders helps contextualize these construction projects as fortifications. One of Bhagavan's subordinates, an Iranian noble, and other local officials in Bhagavan's territory warned against doing this because the locust swarms were especially large that year, and conscripting men to build these fortifications would mean pulling them out of their fields, both leaving that year's grain supply to be ruined by the locust horde and nourishing the locusts to increase the size of next year's swarms. This letter provides interesting insight into the balance that had to be struck by Achaemenid rulers between military readiness and the demands of basic economic and agricultural duties. It also gives us a glimpse into the command structure, saying that Dazaika the scribe was in command of Nikshapaya, suggesting that simply being a scribe was not the full extent of his duties, but rather a title. This is similar to how high-ranking administrative officials in the Persepolis Fortification Archive, almost 200 years older, were simultaneously scribes and the leading officials for various towns in Parsa. Document A5 is brief, but from a similar context. Akva Mazda followed up with Bhagavant on previous orders, which are not preserved, to build a wall at Kish, a town situated near modern Shari Sab's Uzbekistan. 
Document A7 has one of the most tantalizing bits of information in regard to military activity. It is a heavily damaged scrap of leather. Some officer, possibly Akva Mazda himself, reported that the troops under his command did something with leather containers. This could be as mundane as just distributing new water skins to the soldiers for drinking water, but we are talking about an area along multiple rivers. Inflated animal skins or leather sacks were often used as rafts by armies in antiquity, especially when they were in a rush and didn't have time for proper constructions. It's a tactic we've seen multiple times on this show before. Document A8 has an interesting crossover between civil and potentially military affairs. Akva Mazda directed one of his subordinates to collect grain in accordance with the royal tax assessment and bring it to a fortress called Zarempi. This is likely the same place as Zariaspa, as it is known in Greek and later Persian history. In later periods, Zariaspa was just another name for Bactra itself, but this suggests it may have started in the Achaemenid period as a fortified location or satrapal palace outside of the city. This letter about taxation may have been as simple as just collecting all of the grain in a central depot, or as dramatic as pulling all of the grain into a protected location to prepare for a siege. Most documents in the second category, Section B, have a much more explicitly military context. B1 is a letter between two nobles, which reads, From Mithrafarna to my brother, Upadvara, I send you much peace and strength, and anoint the whole large army by my desire. A little bit of damage and wear, then that which I shall send to you by the hand of Nakor, and whatever word he will say to you, that and more, small bit of damage, perform, little more damage, and may there be to you peace. Vakadata will thus send to you. We don't know anything about the individuals mentioned here. My brother could be literal or just a respectful or affectionate greeting. However, the letter does make it clear that Mithrafarna was mobilizing an army to aid Upadvara. Vakadatta is either a commander of this army or the messenger literally carrying the letter from Bactra to wherever Upadvara was stationed. The goal was to achieve peace of some sort, presumably the kind that comes after a battle. Document B5 is similar. It is a letter from an officer to his commander, though the introductions are lost. Now, if it please my lord, may he think well of me that, little bit of damage, the equipment. Therefore, he sent it to you. Also, fair amount of damage, so that there should be no damage in the military division. For this reason, I said to you, 
Send to me its indemnity. He will be glad, he who has paid Shamaya. We don't know what Shamaya is. In fact, I'm just inventing vowels to make it pronounceable. Since it's written in Aramaic, we just know that it's sh m ye. We don't know what vowels should go in between. It's an unfamiliar word. Apparently referring to a specific type of indemnity payment or other recompense. However, the general meaning of the letter is still pretty clear, even though it's fragmentary. Something was wrong with an army's equipment, but the subordinate has rectified this. Once again, it's about military preparedness. B9 is extremely damaged, but has some connections to the issues I've already described. It reads, You, damage, will call for his help. Lots of damage. My house in Kish. Lots more damage. My, some damage. But men, lots of damage. Come. That which you have done. And the rest is cut off. This could be a civil issue, but its style and the scribe who composed the letter, based on handwriting, are primarily used for military administration. The house in Kish likely connects to that wall I mentioned earlier, and somebody was calling for aid. It could be simple, something about needing more provisions, or it could be that Kish was under attack, we just don't know. The final text of military note is section C2. Section C is actually all just receipts for distributions of rations, and C2 itself is either very, very short or just very damaged. It's just a note that some sheep were transferred to a new owner. However, it is also the text that mentions Vishtaspa Karanaya, or Histaspes the Karanos, if you want to use the more familiar variation. Interestingly, this text is dated, but it does not specify to which king. It just says year one, which hardly helps us determine which of the five possible rulers referenced in the archive would be relevant to this. It's at least unlikely to be Artaxerxes III's first year, but still quite likely that Vishtaspa here was appointed by the current king in our podcast, given how the rest of his history goes down. Assuming that this text does in fact date to the reign of one of those kings, the presence of Keranos is of military significance. It tells us that there was a need for an extraordinarily empowered commander to direct operations in Sogdia and Bactria. There is also an outside chance that this Vishtaspa was a potentate claiming independence sometime after Alexander the Great arrived in Bactria, and was using Karanaya in a similar fashion to its use in Middle Hellenistic Persis, where it apparently denoted local Persian rulers. We will get to all of that in good time. So what does all of this vague military record-keeping tell us about the reign of Artaxerxes III? Apparently, there was a lot of activity. 
The Northeastern armies were regularly on the move, and a lot of effort was being put into repairing and garrisoning various forts and towns in and around Sogdia. There are two plausible explanations, rebellion at home or steppe invasion from abroad. And based on the later Alexandrian sources, both were starting to become more of an issue in the Achaemenid north by the mid-4th century. However, those sources also show no signs of explicit revolt. In fact, it's much the opposite. The most likely explanation, then, is that nomadic raiders were becoming a larger and more organized threat. The biggest candidate for this turmoil are the Saka tribes of the Dahai Confederacy. Once upon a time, they were subdued by Xerxes. But by the time we get to the 320s, they will be an active threat invading formerly Achaemenid territory. This would be the likely moment for them to have started ramping up that aggression, especially since so many imperial resources were being devoted to the West. That's the whole military angle here, but since we're already in the episode and lots of you have given positive feedback on episodes that discuss more about daily life and economy, I'd be remiss if I didn't cover some of the other texts in the ADOP. When I was applying to grad school, in just one visit to a prospective department, my roommate and I kept track of all the languages we had been told we needed to learn to study ancient Persia. The final tally came to 27 relevant languages. As somebody overwhelmed by Greek, Latin, and the need to pick up French and German, that was a bit terrifying. Reading mostly dead languages is different from speaking them, but just picking up a new language in any context is daunting. Fortunately, Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. I've had more than a few times where I wished I knew modern Persian. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert in language learning for 30 years and built up a catalog of 25 languages to learn, all available through their lifetime membership, which you can get today for 50% off. Not all of them overlap with that list from grad school, but many do. Hebrew, Persian, Latin, German, and Russian, just to name a few. Rosetta Stone has no English translations, always the part I found most frustrating, and instead focuses on long-term retention through an intuitive process of working up from simple words to full sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today.
Document A6 features Akva Mazda reprimanding Bhagavant for not performing requisite maintenance in some northern towns. Specifically, re-roofing the houses there, and for withholding grain and sesame seeds for planting from those towns. What's interesting is that it gives us a sense of the proto-feudal structure in some Achaemenid provinces. As their landlord, so to speak, Bhagavant was responsible for maintaining these little Sogdian villages, and failure to do so led to a rebuke from his superiors. It also gives a glimpse into what appears to be the palace economy akin to Persepolis, where resources were collected by the local nobility and redistributed to their workforce as needed, rather than individual farms keeping their seeds for planting the next year, and either suffering over many years from the consequences of one poor harvest, or expanding dramatically and gaining an unfair advantage thanks to a bountiful year, seeds were collected and redistributed annually by the central authorities. A9 is apparently a prescription or civil proceeding against Bhagavant, who received a drug or herb of some kind from his wife. It is not clear why Akva Mazda would be involved, but this is from his archive. Nor can we tell why something like this needed to be litigated. It sounds like an internal family affair in Bhagavan's household. The plant is described as the white variety, which could indicate something to do with sacred Homa. Another possibility, given that it specifically references Bhagavan's wife, is that the plant was some kind of abortificient, and they were litigating a case of either infidelity or terminating a pregnancy against Bhagavan's wishes. Never let it be said that the ancient world was perfectly pro-choice. A10 once again features Bhagavant in a sticky situation with Akba Mazda acting as the adjudicator. In this case, the local governor was held liable in a civil suit for some quantity of grain. What exactly he did to deserve this fine is unstated. Many of the other letters are pretty routine communications that don't develop any information about an individual or event, partly because they are either smaller or very damaged. They are mostly about private sales of property and livestock, but unlike Babylonian evidence, there's not really enough to determine what the economy looked like on a day-to-day -day level. As an example, B4 reads, From Bakhtrifana to my brother, Kithrakardata, I send my brother much peace and health. And now, here with me, there is peace. May there be also peace with you. And now also, the letter that you sent me instead of sending the donkey. I approached Tithra Vahishta. Some damage. Fine donkeys. But send donkeys to Zerva Gavaithya. Afterwards, to that place. A little more damage. Now. That donkey sent immediately to Zerva Gavathya, that he may take the donkey to this place, 
little more damage, which he sent to you. It's just instructions on how to handle the sale of some donkeys, which seems to have caused a bit of a schism between the two men involved in the transaction. But it shows a specific example of routine dealings among the upper class in Bactria. Documents C6 and 7 show a surprising amount of trade for luxury textiles with Cappadocia. They're both fairly damaged, but reference blue and purple garments, highly prestigious and expensive colors. It's indicative of both wide-ranging trade within the empire, and possibly of a flourishing textile industry in Cappadocia, a region we only rarely hear anything about. There is also a separate category of economic records in the Adab, tally sticks. These are thin strips of wood with cuts on the edges to indicate quantities, but we don't know how to interpret those quantities. Usually there is some kind of message or label written on the flat sides, but usually not a record of what is being exchanged. They were likely a sort of fast receipt for when you didn't need a lot of scribal work. Almost all of the tally sticks in the collection are from 333 BCE, which probably reflects the impermanence of the sticks or the lost provenance of these documents. The date 333 makes it very tempting to associate weird documents of any sort with Alexander the Great, but there is no evidence or reason for that to be the case here. The last mostly banal administrative record I want to mention is C1, a very long provision list for an event sent to Bessus in the first year of Artaxerxes. For some reason, the commentators reason that the year of Artaxerxes must refer to Bessus's royal title, Artaxerxes V, because Bessus himself is mentioned. That doesn't make a ton of sense, and rather than saying Bessus sprung into existence in 330, the more likely explanation is that this is year one of Artaxerxes IV. As with Vishtaspa, this probably means that Bessus had his appointment by the time Artaxerxes III died. Subsequent commentaries published on the same text almost universally hold that position. Interestingly, this is apparently a list of supplies for a religious festival. It lists many deities like Vatavayu and the Mesopotamian high god Bel, as well as a yasht ceremony, supplies for an altar, preparations for a horse race, and valuable lapis lazuli. The chief divinity of the festival may have been Haruvati, either as a description for Anahita or a rare use of her original name. But the same phrase may just denote Ericosian wine, since Haruvati was also the Achaemenid name for Ericosia. There is also a reference to Zer, which seems to be a god? If so, it's probably a truncated form of Zervan, the divinity of time but we don't actually know what Zer means in this case. Mostly, though, 
this list is just a ton of food. And here's the interesting thing. It was delivered in the month of Kislev, according to the Semitic calendar used in official Aramaic reports. Assuming the lunar calendar was being at least sort of maintained to align with the solar calendar, this celebration probably corresponded with Shabayalda, the subject of the very first History of Persia holiday special back in 2019. I'll link to that in the description, but traditionally, Shabayalda focuses on feasting and celebration, which is exactly what is implied by this document. It also marks the earliest known event in the lifetime of Bessus, who will arguably be the final major figure in the history of the Empire. But again, I'm getting ahead of myself, so for now, that's all for Bactria. We will return at least once in the next few months, but next time we're back to the west, where Artaxerxes III was preparing to deal with Egypt once and for all. Until then, if you want more information about this podcast, go to historyofpersiapodcast.com. That's where you'll find things like my bio, the bibliography, podcast merchandise, and the Achaemenid family tree. You'll also find the support page where you can help out this project financially. That includes one-time donations, affiliate links, and most importantly, Patreon. Also found at patreon.com slash historyofpersia. Patreon offers a monthly subscription where you get access to things like bonus episodes, merchandise, discounts, ad-free listening, and reading recommendations. Subscription tiers range from just $1 to $20 and do a lot to keep the lights on. You don't have to spend money to support me, though. You can also do that by leaving a review on your podcast platform of choice, and most importantly of all, telling other people to listen. Independent podcasts live or die by word of mouth, so tell your friends, tell your family, and share on social media. You can find me at History of Persia on Twitter or History of Persia Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Until the next time, thank you all so much for listening to History of Persia. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success.